everyone. Welcome back to the Writer's Book Club podcast. This is the podcast where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm Michelle Barraclough and this month I chatted with the fabulous Jessica Detman. Her novel, This Has Been Absolutely Lovely, was one of my all-time favourite books this year. I've told so many people to read it and I urge all of you to read it as well. It has a cast of really beautiful, relatable characters. It's heartwarming, but it's also a little bit heartbreaking in parts and it's funny. But don't just take my word for it. There's a fabulous blurb on the book from none other than Tim Minchin who said, Hilarious, poignant and a genuine page turner, Detman's tone is addictively dry and often laugh out loud funny, but the family drama that involves is a proper yarn with lovely dramatic twists and gorgeous revelations and resolutions. Isn't that a beautiful review? I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it perfectly sums up Jess's novel. Now let me tell you a little bit about the novel. Molly is a millennial home organiser about to have her first baby. Obviously, her mum Annie will help with the childcare. Everyone else's parents are doing it. But Annie's dreams of music stardom have been on hold for 35 years, paused by childbirth and then buried under her responsibilities as a mother, wage earner, wife and the only child of ailing parents. Finally, she can taste freedom. As Molly and her siblings gather in the close quarters of the family home over one fraught summer, shocking revelations come to light. Everyone is forced to confront the question of what it means to be a family. This Has Been Absolutely Lovely is a story about growing up and giving in, of parents and children, of hope and failure, bravery and defied expectation, and whether it's ever too late to try again. I'm going to say no to that because I started this podcast when I was 52, so it's never too late. Now, a little bit about Jess, and this is from her website, which will give you an indication of her gorgeous sense of humour. Jessica Detman is the author of two novels, a couple of short stories and many blog posts. She was born and raised in Sydney, Australia, and there she remains, disappointing her 14-year-old self who thought she would be living in the Pensioni in Florence from A Room With A View by now. You and me both, Jess. She's married and has two children and two cats. She does not enjoy walking on the beach with her dog because parking is very expensive at the beach and she does not have a dog. Before she became a writer, she worked for a long time as a book editor. She's very lucky Instagram didn't exist back then or she would have been fired for time wasting. Now she is her own boss and she's on her last warning for time wasting on Instagram stories. She loves to hear from readers, preferably readers of her books, but honestly, she's not that fussy. Please enjoy this interview with Jessica Detman about the writing craft and process behind her novel. This has been absolutely lovely. Jessica Detman, hello. Hello, Michelle. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. It's very exciting to be here. It is. Now, Jess, you and I both live in Sydney, where we've just come out of 115 days of lockdown. And last week, our children went back to school for the first time in six long months. Now, tell me, how much are you missing being a homeschool teacher, a canteen lady and doing playground duty? I am not missing any of that at all. <laughs> not, not, not at all. Not even the tiniest bit. I completely agree with you. How has your productivity been during the whole lockdown and homeschooling situation? It was terrible. It was really, really poor. So the first two weeks of lockdown were school holidays, which I don't usually work in anyway. And then uh, we went back into term 
and into the homeschooling and my husband's my husband runs his own business and you always works from home anyway and his workload just skyrocketed and so I used that plus the fact that I was in a sort of free-falling state of panic um, about my current project to not do anything with it for several weeks and uh, just did all the homeschooling and everything else all the online shopping there was about as much of that as there was homeschooling and um, in fact I became one of a number of people to write to my publisher um, and this is so embarrassing because this isn't how work writing books goes you know I've been given an advance to write a book and I'm supposed to go away and do that and I have a date by which I have to present the manuscript um, so nowhere in that is there really a viable space to email your publisher and say please can you allow me three weeks leave because they just you know that you're supposed to work in your own time and at your own pace you, you don't ask for weeks off in the middle of that you can take them off if you want you can write it all the night before if that works for you but I needed permission to stop trying to write the book I'm writing for a few weeks while I came to terms with all of the homeschooling stuff. And so I wrote off to my publisher and I said, this sounds insane, but please, can I have three weeks off? And she said, you can have three weeks off and you're not the first person to ask. <laughs> you're not even the third person. You're not even the third person to ask me this. Because I think there were just a lot of people feeling extremely overwhelmed and yeah. In a, a regular job, you might be able to take some leave. You might have some sick leave or annual leave up your sleeve, but the writing books doesn't work like that. Yeah, and just quietly, do you think the publishers might also have been at home with children and desperately hoping that authors would call in and say, can I please have three weeks extra? They because absolutely were, yep. Yeah. And yeah. All, the, all the freelance editors were at home with their children. Exactly. And everybody was just in um, a bit of a state of... How do we get this done? And even in non-COVID, non-lockdown times, I think people do ask for extensions all the time for lots of different reasons. So, you know, I think the, the publishers are, are used to that, aren't they? I think so, yeah. Now, Jess, I loved this book. I have raved to everybody about how much I've loved it. I don't want to say I absolutely loved it because something being absolutely lovely isn't exactly a compliment in your book, is it? It's not, but I think I've also ruined that phrase for myself. <laughs> I obviously use the word absolutely and lovely a lot in my real life, and now I just sound like I'm hawking my book at every turn. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've bought um, quite a few copies to give to people at Christmas. Mum, if you're listening, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> because I feel like it just speaks to women predominantly your two female protagonists i felt like i could relate to both of them annie the 60-ish year old mother of recently deceased parents and grown-up children who just mm -hmm. wants five minutes of peace where people aren't asking her for something or wanting something from her but i could also relate to molly who you know the the, is she 30 yet, Molly? She's around the 30 she's, age. She's 28. She? Yeah. 28. She's pregnant. She's, you know, trying to sort of figure out her place in the world. And and I think one of my favourite lines was, how do people break through the glass ceiling when they're so worried about their pelvic floors? And I thought that is just so, so <laughs> true, isn't it? Like, really. She's a fairly rudderless person. She is. She is. But I feel like we've all been there. Um, recent lockdown, a case yeah. in point. So just mm -hmm. what came first for you with uh, this novel, the premise and the plot or one of those particular characters? Well, initially it was the premise, I think, um, 
but it wasn't quite this premise. So originally, I uh, my first book I wrote and submitted to the publishers and they came back and offered me a two-book deal and they said, have you got an idea for a second book? And I didn't have an idea for a second book. So on the spot, I made up a lie and said yes. Um, I... Actually, I was in the bath and I got that email and I went, oh, God, I have to reply to this immediately that I must waste no time or they will revoke that suggestion of ever writing anything else. So I quickly came up with this idea based on someone I know, a couple I know who bought a piece of land when they were married and then when they got divorced, they were trying to decide whether or not to sell it as the just the land or whether they should build a house on it to capitalise and then they'd make more money. And I liked the idea of people having to build a house together while divorcing. Um, I realised quite quickly that I don't know enough about building a house and I hadn't lived through that to, to use that. The other thing um, that I took away from that, the story that that couple told me was that it was on a battle axe block and that the man who owned the property at the front used to just stand next to the driveway and stare at them every single time they drove down onto their part of the block and because it was a right of way and a right of way is something that I've always known about my parents property has one you know I think it's very common in city and country blocks and I always just thought it was a really weird idea and a weird old-fashioned word I always thought I thought the word was right of way I thought it was one word for a very long time and then I realized it was in fact you have right of way over someone else's land um, so I decided to write a book about a house and the people who own the house and the right of way across someone else's property and the relationship with that neighbour. Um, and then the idea of a right of way started to become more of a metaphor to me and I like the idea of which people you allow to trample all over your life and who you can't stop from doing it and who you have control over doing it. And that was where I then found my way towards the character of Annie, who is um, a woman who's trampled over some people's lives but had a lot more people trample over hers. So that was sort of the real germ of an idea for the book. And from there I built the characters and the plot around those concepts. I love um, the neighbour's name is Ray. Right of way, Ray. Right of way, Ray. Yeah. <laughs> Got to be careful how you say that. <laughs> right of way, Ray. Right of way, Ray. <laughs> Speaking of characters, the author Pamela Cook asked a question. She wants to know what was your inspiration for the characters and how did you go about developing the relationships between them? So the original inspiration for Annie, um, who as a teenager was part of a band with her two best friends who were two boys she went to school with, um, that came from a photo of Abba, which is quite a famous picture of them sitting on a park bench and one couple is kissing and the other couple are just sitting there and one's staring straight ahead at the camera. Only Agneta, the blonde, is staring straight at the camera and she just looks so incredibly left out. And I really wanted to explore the idea of what it's like to be left out of a triangle, you know, of a group of three. Groups of three are really interesting in friendships. The triangle is the strongest shape, there's that old saying, um, because geometrically it is, but it, leads from, <laughs> it can lead to a lot of hurt feelings and being left out and so I, I then started to build Annie as somebody who had had these two great friends and then romance got involved and the triangle started to move into being a pair of which she was half 
but then it moves again into another pair of which she's not part of it. So and that was where Annie came from originally. Um, and I was also watching a lot of YouTube clips of making your mind up. What's that band called? Bucks Fizz. Bucks Fizz. And I started to think about the one-hit wonders of Eurovision and and what it would be like to be somebody who almost made it big and then just didn't get to pursue that anymore, which is what happened to Annie at the beginning of this of her story. Um, she, yeah, she and the band make it to Eurovision and she's pregnant and can't or isn't allowed to perform and they just sort of let their dreams go and, and it, they drift away and she moves back onto the suburban path that was originally set for her by her birth and where she grew up. So yes, that's where that's where Annie came from. And then and then I guess Annie's dad is another character who's who's dead at the beginning of the book, but is still a really strong thread through the narrative. Um, and he's he's based on someone else I know whose father was not what they seemed. And and I'm keen to explore how that affects adult children to make a discovery about their parent um, or grandparent and how that shifts everything that you thought you knew about yourself and the way you position yourself in the world mm. and what happens when that is that rug is pulled out from under you. Because Annie was really a part of another triangle, really, wasn't she? As an only child, she had her mother and her father and her. That's right. And her mother was always was the left out one. Mm. Yeah, in that situation, it was, it was Annie and her dad against the world with her mum there as a supporting act. So she then has to reassess some things in her life. So how do you go about differentiating the characters? I loved the three adult children. Simon, Naomi and Molly are so, so different. And I'm sure you must have had someone that you were drawing inspiration from on those because they're so realistically drawn. I could just picture them. And the way you use voice uh, with all three of them is is brilliant. Like, is that how you differentiate their voice? I think it is, yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of dialogue in the book. And that makes it um, a bit easier to find their voices. The way they interact with each other is, is you know, different. There's just, there's a lot of, contra- I sort of thought about the contrasts within pairs and, and then similarities within pairs. So, you know, Molly is contrasted with Annie throughout the book as a mother-daughter who are very, very different. Um, Paul is contrasted with Brian, who are a couple, again, really different. But then there are the similarities. So Molly is very similar to her father, Paul. Um, which highlights the contrast with her and her mother. Because they're all family, it made it more fun because you could kind of draw similarities and parallels between people and that brings up even more conflict with other characters. And, and conflict, I find, is a really great way of bringing out people's character, throwing them into situations where they have to you know, navigate something difficult. And that, that's one of the best ways I've found to distill who they are. Jess, there's a section pretty early on in the novel on page 22 that I think really demonstrates what we're talking about in terms of the differentiation between the voices. Would you mind reading that section out? Yeah, absolutely. So this is where um, Molly, who's the youngest sister, and her older sister Naomi are in the living room of their grandparents' house at their grandfather's wake. And um, Naomi's a bit of a free spirit and Molly is a bit of a tightly wound coil I think you could say (laughs) Molly heard Naomi approaching she made a soft tinkling sound as she moved her personal fanfare a combination of the tiny bells embroidered onto her skirt and her many anklets and bracelets 
She put down the now empty cheese triangle plate. Molly eyed it with disappointment. It's wild being back here altogether, Naomi said. Molly glanced into the living room. There was barely any movement. Is wild the word? Naomi laughed. Not them, just us, you know, the three of us and mum. Dad's back tomorrow and Brian. But not Pa or Granny. Naomi looked around knowingly. They're here. They haven't gone far. You reckon? For sure. Spirits don't go. Not straight away. I can feel them both here today. Why? What do they do? Just lurk around, watch us, put coasters under drinks? Depends on the spirit and whether they're still here because they're trapped or because they're free and choose to visit. Right. And which situation fits our grandparents? I'm not sure. Sometimes spirits can't move on because there's someone still here who needs their help. Oh, that'll be it. Granny probably wants to help me with the baby. Do you think I can get the childcare rebate if I leave my kid with a ghost when I go back to work? Naomi ignored her. Sometimes they stay because they have unfinished business. Something is holding them here or someone. Molly regarded her sister. You really are very weird. Do you know that? This might be all normal up in Byron, but objectively it's very weird to believe in ghosts. Naomi shrugged. You asked. She took the plate of chicken sandwiches into the old people. <laughs> Thank you. I love that bit. That's a perfect example, I think, of how you use voice to differentiate between the characters. It um, becomes more it becomes more concrete the further through I get, you know, um, as I get to know the characters more. Yeah. It becomes easier to know, know what they'll tell each other. Speaking of which, do you think about your characters and do those sort of character bios before you start writing or do you write your way into the story and, and learn about the characters as you go? I wish I could say I planned the characters better and I completely don't. I, they just get built as I go. They start off as blocks who just stand there and say what I need them to say and then become more nuanced and um, differentiated as I get further and further in and then keep going back and carving more bits off them to make them into actual real-life people. So, so then a lot of that happens back in the edit? Yes. Well, yes, in the edit and because uh, I sort of – how do I write how do I write this book? How do you write, I, How do I write? How do I write? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote through this story sort of knowing the characters and sort of knowing the story but then going back over it every day almost to refine it. So really what I had – that in at the end was technically the first draft, but it had been gone over and over and over so many times, um, polishing and refining people and trying to make them make sense. Because once I had the story straight, then I had to adjust the characters to make them appropriate for that story, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And you don't realise at the beginning of writing a book who that everybody gets a character arc, I think. I most I, that seems too overwhelming to me when I'm writing and so I just sort of focus on one or two people who have a character arc but eventually you start to see that everybody has their own journey and mm. they all have to end up somewhere different from when they started yeah yeah so speaking of the sort of the planning side of things to what extent did you plan or outline this novel can you tell us about your process for developing and managing plot itself it's not so much a process as just I have a bunch of unwieldy people and an idea. It's more like a theme and a couple of characters and then I just start to see what they will do. 
and I put them in rooms and let them talk to each other. <laughs> and then occasionally I realise they have to go somewhere else because it's getting very boring, everybody just staying in one place and then I'll find somewhere that would be appropriate for them to go and they go there and they do a thing. Yeah. It's a very organic, I think is a nice <laughs> way of putting it, way of, of plotting. Um, and I sort of know where I want them to end up emotionally and and sometimes in terms of uh, events, I do have some idea, but not. I didn't have that many ideas. I, I kind of knew I wanted this to begin with a funeral and end with a wedding. Uh, you know, massive spoiler alert there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but whose um, wedding? We do not know. <laughs> but whose wedding? Exactly. <laughs> so, no, there really, there's no plot um, diagram. There are no Sally Hepworth spreadsheets. <laughs> It's just chaos, I'm afraid. <laughs> Do you write in order then? Yeah, I write absolutely in order. Occasionally I'll I'll do a bit of running out of steam with a scene and just stop and start another chapter and then get a really big shock when I come back to reread it and realise <laughs> I haven't finished that chapter. I have to write an ending. Damn it. <laughs> Can't just write chapter next and move on, which is what I, I sometimes do. Yeah. Do you tend to write in chapters or scenes? Um, mostly scenes mm. and then try and figure out some sort of natural way to break it up into chapters. I still don't really understand how you do that. I just, yeah, you know, rough, rough numbers, rough groupings of scenes. If I ever change perspective, I try and change chapter. I don't mm. like shoulder hopping because there's two perspectives in this book. There's Molly and Annie and I try and keep them to a chapter each but it doesn't always happen I think you could drive yourself crazy if you tried to do alternating because at some point in the story the right person has to tell that part of the story don't they and if it just happens to be a Molly chapter well sorry bad luck Molly you'll just have to wait a bit longer for your chapter because this exactly is Annie. Annie has to tell this part and that was something that I struggled with um, with this book because my first book was uh, in the first person present tense which just happened to be the same way I had always written my blog posts, which was <laughs> the only thing I'd ever written before. Um, so that was quite an easy transition into writing fiction. But then this time I went, okay, I'm having two protagonists and I think I'm going to have it in first person in both their voices. So I wrote quite a, probably a good third of the book like that and then went, no, this isn't working, I can't distinguish their voices clearly enough. Um, so then I went back and rewrote it all in the third person, thereby developing a sort of narratorial over voice. That's not the word, is it? But I know what you mean. Oh, you know, people who've studied writing will know. What is it? A bit of omniscient something or other. Omniscient <laughs> narrator. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm getting at. That's what I, did. That's what I had. Um, and and I hadn't done that before, so it was it was interesting to learn how you do that and how you get in people's heads and how you don't shoulder hop between characters too much. And also, there were other characters that I wanted to tell from their perspective, and I think I think there's still one scene from a, another one or two scenes from a third character's perspective um, who isn't yeah isn't either of those women, but their voice needed to be heard in this story. So I just thought, okay, well, there's no rules. <laughs> Hopefully that's not too jarring, that part. <laughs> yeah. Throw those rules out the window. So writing in third point of view, 
did you fall into that trap of doing the she felt, she wondered, that passive language that you don't necessarily get with first person? Yes, but then I started to realise that you don't always have to do that. You can just write the thoughts without saying she thought she wondered as much. I think you do do that. Yeah, I've been talking to my friend Pam Cook about this deep point of view where, and she went through one of my manuscripts and she took out a whole lot of the she felt, she wondered kind of thing. She said, you don't need that because you still, even though it's third person, you still want to be in their head. You're still in their their head. head. Yeah, Yeah. I'm just just looking at one page now, which is Molly, um, page 153, is thinking about having her baby and she's really worried about having her child and because she hasn't actually put much thought into what it would be like to be a parent. Mm. Um, So I've written, she sent a telepathic message to the baby and it squirmed. Oh, the message she's sending is be a boy. What what did that mean? Was that an affirmative wriggle? It was so stupid to wonder that. It would take one phone call to her GP to learn if the baby was a boy or a girl. The test results from early pregnancy gave that information as a matter of course, but she and Jack had chosen to wait for a surprise. Yeah, so eventually you become more relaxed with, trusting that your reader knows that that's the thoughts of the person you've most recently mentioned. Yeah, it's it's not Jessica Detman's No, it's not my thoughts. (laughs) It's what did that mean? Was it an affirmative wiggle? Yeah, instead of she wondered wondered what what that that meant. meant. Yeah. 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 I think that also just brings the reader in closer to that character as well, doesn't it? It does. And Mm. it's something I'm finding hard in my new book, actually, because the the new one has um, only one perspective and I, for some reason, it feels too close in that person's brain. And whereas it was a little bit easy when there were two brains to go in and out of. I'm not sure. Ah. I'm still, I'm still trying to wrestle with that. But maybe that's just because this one's still early stages. Yeah. And are you writing that one in first person as well? Uh, no, but I started it that way and then switched mm. over the third because I wanted a bit more distance. What happens when you sit down to write a chapter or a scene, Jess? Do you think about what a scene needs to achieve in terms of character development or moving the story forward or conflict? I I sort of think about, yes, I do think about what the scene needs to do and where it needs to move the story. Um, And then I decide what a scene will be. I think about what would happen in real life. So this is set around a Christmas where the whole family is back together. So I just sort of thought about all of the actual things that would happen and then within that I found ways to move the story, to progress the story. So, for example, you know, it's about a woman who's trying to reclaim her creativity and start writing music again after a very long time. So I had some scenes where she's sitting at the piano when there's no one else in the house, which is a hard thing to do when there's 14 people staying and then I needed to find interruptions that would occur naturally. So... People come in with a Christmas tree. People come in um, with a bucket full of passion fruit and ask her where her mother's pavlova recipe is. Um, I just tried to make it as natural and real as I could based on what I knew of these people and their problems and their issues. Yeah, and and having some inherent conflict in there with that as well. Yes, exactly. And all of those, you know, anything like that leads to conflict. Anybody's wants and needs coming up against someone else's (laughs) can lead to a lot of conflict and that's just a really great way of propelling story and character I think. And what about ending a scene? Do you try to end a scene with a a question or a a bit of a page turning cliffhanger or how does that work for you? 
depends on the scene. Sometimes you leave something for people to wonder. Um, sometimes I like there to be something to propel you on to the next scene. I like to end them with a bit of action sometimes. I like to end a scene with some uncertainty for the main character of that scene. And yeah. I'm just looking at, um, at, you know, Jane and Annie. Jane is Annie's best friend and she's always propelling Annie. She's a really good mover in this book. And so I love Jane. She's one of my favourite characters. Everyone needs a Jane, I think. Yeah, she kicks things along. I really like her too. Um, so she's a kick in the pants, Jane, and she's very good at um, pushing the story forward. And so some, sometimes at the end of the scene with Jane, it will cause Annie to wonder something that she hadn't before, you know, at the end of one thing. <laughs> she thinks about whether she would maybe should have a joint and that that would help things. So I also like to end the scene with a little bit of humour. Um, that often works, especially when things have been difficult in the scene. So there's a there's on page 147, an interaction between Naomi and Molly where they are just sort of having some low-level bickering about um, Naomi helping out the next-door neighbour, making soup for him, and Molly doesn't understand why that's going on. And it's something's happening with Ray, but everybody doesn't know about it, only some people do. And Naomi and Molly discussing this. And Molly just is nagging her sister with a lot of questions. And at the end, she says, Naomi stopped grinding pepper into the soup and looked at her. Why are you asking so many questions? Why do you care how many questions I asked? Naomi didn't answer, but turned back to the soup. Molly hated the way her sister had always refused to argue with her. It made the last word seem not worth having. That's just classic Molly and Naomi. It's classic Molly and Naomi, yeah. <laughs> I also love uh, the end of chapter 19 when poor Molly has had the baby. She's really struggling. That horrible feeling of when the baby's latching on and it feels like razor blades and Jack is just, as the father, mm. feeling so helpless on page 196. Um, yeah. And it's a sort of a, a summary which I think you also do beautifully at the end of chapters. Thank you. And that's actually one of the spots where I jumped into his head. Shouldn't have. And I'm glad so you did. And so my editor went, well, yeah, me too. But my editor said, you can't actually just say Jack offered helplessly, remembering that Molly had given birth at home, blah, blah, blah. We needed to, to be possibly remembering because Molly doesn't know for sure. This is still from Molly's mm. perspective. She has to be projecting all these thoughts into Jack's head. See, I wouldn't have thought that. That felt seamless to me. Well, see, I didn't notice it either, but that's why editors are amazing, because they notice things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and you used to be a, an editor, didn't you, Jess? So how has that been, transitioning from editing brain to novelist brain? Has that been an easy transition for you, or were you able to just switch off? It's been a helpful thing, I think, um, both from the perspective of knowing a lot about what makes things work in a book, technically, um, but also knowing that there's really, my, what I do is a big part of this book, but I'm not all of it. And knowing that my draft is going to get so much care and attention and expertise it's, it just is hugely confidence-inspiring and boosting to know that the next set of eyes that look at it are just so clever and know so much. Because, I, you know, I edited for 10 years um, and I didn't do a ton of fiction editing. I mostly did non-fiction stuff, uh, which is a little bit... It's a different set of skills, for sure. 
Um, but to know that there's going to be an incredibly uh, clever and experienced fiction editor who comes to this book after I hand it in, is, it's the best thing in the world. <laughs> it makes you feel freer to write knowing that there'll be somebody who will pick you up on your nonsense yeah. How, so, and won't let you get away with anything. Exactly. Because we do try to get away with things, don't we, with our writing? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I always liken it to um, authors feel to me like we are the real estate agents who just like paint over things. We paint over cracks as much as we can. And then you, your editor needs to be the, the structural engineer who you pay to come in and assess your house before you pay for it. And who's like, that's damp. That is just damp behind that wall and it will not last. And you've just and you've just painted over it, haven't you? And I've just put a <laughs> I've just put a pot plant in front of it. But nobody's gonna see that. No, no. Nobody that's not a problem. And they went, no, no, it is a problem and people will notice and it won't be okay. And so just fix it. And so and you you know all the things that are wrong with your book when you've written it. You just don't always know how to fix them yourself yeah yeah and and that's where the editors come in <laughs> so but how was the editorial process for this novel yeah so i i sent the beginning of this back and forth to my publisher a few times um going first person third person present tense past tense what what is the best thing and we eventually landed on what was the best thing for it so then when i had the voice then it was okay and i could keep keep going and I wrote all the way to the end but the biggest issue I had I think with the book was the beginning and I still don't think that the beginning of this book is as immediately engaging as I would have liked it to be and I read that in um, readers reviews as well um, a lot of people had no problem with it but, but you know a number of people go oh it was a little bit slow to begin and it was a bit hard to get my get into it but I'm so glad I did once I was in it was amazing and I loved it um it sounded modest, didn't it? Um, but They're spot on. I'll say it for you. <laughs> I was just trying to get so much backstory and information in because the book is about somebody's life from 60 onwards for the next, It's you know, it's a short time mm. frame. It's only a month or two. No, it's only a month, this book. I felt like I needed everybody to know everything that had happened to Annie before that leading up to it. Um, so there was a prologue initially, which was, you know, a very interesting story about what had happened to her, but it was it was clumsy and it was lazy. Um, you know, I think that prologues aren't always the lazy way out, but quite a lot of the time they are, I think. So, yes, it originally had that tacked on to the beginning and it needed to go. And so that the, that's probably the biggest thing I had to do structurally was to weave that in elsewhere in the book in bits. And it's interesting because... Because I wrote it in such a big lump at the beginning and then wove it in, I'm still not quite sure where I've put everything. I know it's all in there and, I, you know, you don't reread your own book after it comes out, but when I go to look for things, I go, oh, okay, you know, there, I did leave that in and there and there and there and there. So it's it's all in there. Move yeah, on. you don't need to reread your work unless annoying interviewers ask you to read bits out in interviews, right? <laughs> I don't mind reading bits of it out loud, but I certainly wouldn't. Wouldn't read the whole thing. <laughs> so, but tell us about more about this prologue. So, was it written as a sort of a telling scene, or did you write it as a as a live scene? It began in the dance class where Annie, Brian, and Paul met, and it just sort of followed through how they met, what was weird about them, why they were drawn together. You know, they're the three 
dorks in their beachside suburb who are into ABBA at a time when, you know, the rest of Sydney's into pub rock and moving into punk. And they're just, they they come together because they want to listen to The Seekers yeah. and ABBA and the car. Peter, Paul and Mary. You know, they're just a bit out of time with their generation. But that works because they then go off and write, you know, daggy pop songs, which is all very Eurovision. Um, and then move through them, their relationships progressing, Annie getting together with Paul, then moving to London, what happens to them in London, and then they return to Sydney, sort of not in disgrace, but not covered in glory either. And then launched from there into the funeral. So it was, look, if you can believe the beginning was even worse, it was. I'm going to jump to the backstory issue now, which I always tend to okay. gravitate towards anyway, because I'm always really. Um, curious about how writers handle backstory. Um, but on page two, Annie's got this earworm of that song that she wrote that was a great big hit, the one hit wonder, and she just can't imagine that she will ever lose this earworm. It's always in her head. And so she imagines one day telling journalists what the song meant to her and how they'd sit together at quiet tables in exclusive London or New York hotels or in a cottage in Laurel Canyon and the subsequent magazine profiles would celebrate her down-to-earth sensibility, her refreshing candour and her charm. They'd describe her lack of makeup and her fresh-faced beauty and mention that she ordered tea and not coffee. This is so classic, Jess, because this is like every kind of Vanity Fair or Vogue article, <laughs> long form. Piece. All those celebrities. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. How the interviews would range over her young life, growing up in a beachside Sydney suburb to meeting Paul and Brian, forming the band Love Triangle with them. Then they moved to London and the story of how they worked their way up, tiny gig by tiny gig. And the journalists would obviously want to focus on Love Triangle's big break, Eurovision 1983, which should have been the moment the world fell in love with Home is Where Your Heart Is and with Annie. She had never dreamed no one would interview her. See, when I reread it for this interview and for our interview at Storyfest, I was like, ah, oh, that's so clever. In one paragraph and in a very entertaining way, Jess has got all that backstory just in there, as well as adding kind of the shattered dream, you know, immediate tension. Okay, so this is what Annie's big wound is. Problem. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's right. I'm just going to call it, Jess. I think it's clever. And um, I think all those naysayers who Thank talk you. about the slow pace of the first chapter can just go and jump in the lake. I think probably what they realised is that the first, you know, event in this book is the funeral. And I think it goes for five chapters, the funeral and the wake. <laughs> like it goes for a really, really long time because there's a lot of things yeah. that happen. Many people interact with each other in small ways. Um, I hope it doesn't feel that long when you read it, but I, I did worry. I did worry that I was like, oh, you know, a little bit of the way into the book and we haven't, it's been an hour and a half in real time. Readers, listeners, don't worry. There's plenty of conflict. You get to know <laughs> a lot about the characters and because Jess's writing is so yeah. funny, it's very entertaining on the way through. Well, that was the other thing that was raised in the edit um, and, and this was what I was, what I feared. So the first book I wrote was pretty mm. funny, and people said, "What a funny book! You're a funny writer." I wrote the draft of this, and one of the main points in the structural edit was, "It's not that funny, is it? <laughs> Could you work in a bit more of that humour that we loved and you know that we really, really wanted?" And it was, she was right. Like I wrote, it was sort of 
panic-stricken book when I wrote this. I was not sure I could do it and I didn't know what I was writing and and it just did have to be pointed out to me that it needed lightening up and to be funnier. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of went back and tried to amp that oh, up no pr- where it was appropriate. I think it worked out okay. The characters are funny. They're funny people and they say funny things to each other. So They do. So... Just on editing, we have a question from Jodie Cooler, who's an author. Um, for writers finishing a first draft, does Jess have any tips for self-editing draft two? What are the things we should be looking for and picking up? Thank you for your question, Jodie. Well, I think that's a great question from Jodie. I think pace is really important. And um, that is something that you can really lose sight of when you're writing because you know it's written over months and one of the things that my editor and I do and we don't do this between the first and second draft we do it once the book is in page proof so in fact this is a little bit further down the track um, is that we read it aloud to each other it happens that my editor is one of my closest friends as well so we we hang out a fair bit anyway but we we now have this tradition where we sit there for a day or sometimes two and we take turns reading a chapter aloud and that is an amazing way to pick up all sorts of issues. Um, I pick, you, you pick up repetition, you pick up the, you know, it's, I sometimes call it just day because it's the day I realised that I use the word just in every second sentence unnecessarily. <laughs> it really needs to stop. Um, and then that's that's even after a couple of edits that you start, you notice all those little irritating things. So repetition is huge there. It helps you with pace. It makes you realise where there are any glaring holes, I think. And and so I would actually recommend doing that after the first draft, in fact. Yeah, that's a great tip. Um, if you can, read it out loud. Read it out loud to someone if you can find a victim who's willing to listen for that long. <laughs> um, because you can, you can gloss over things when you're just reading them in your head, I think. And if you're forced to read it out loud, you hear, you hear the holes and you hear the problems better. Yeah. Do you hear the boring bits? Yeah, because you, you realise when you start reading something out and you feel a bit embarrassed. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, hang on. I, I, could do, I could do better than this. If I, yeah, I think reading things out is really confronting and a really good way of, um, you know, killing the rubbish. And the other thing is that you notice timing as well because this book's set over a pretty short period and it's easy for the reader to lose track of time if you're not dropping in enough references to the days um, and I don't think that's as big an issue in a book which is spread out because you, you sort of more naturally will mention that something was two months ago or whatever but in this you have to really be on top of how many days there are and what day it is and especially around Christmas time otherwise you feel like you know there's 26 days between the you know 25th and the 30th of December it doesn't make sense otherwise. oh my god that <laughs> That week between Christmas and New Year (laughs) does go for a a fairly long time. Um, But having it Christmas, it does give those nice markers, doesn't it? Going off to carols in the domain on Christmas Eve, etc. Yeah. Tell us about the setting for this novel and how you go about description and adding in those sort of sensory details, which I think you do really well. I could really picture this house uh, by the beach, Baskerville Road, and just the heat of an Australian summer and the food and the discussions about the food. 
<laughs> it all just was very evocative and very well done. Um, is that something that is really important for you to establish with a novel, the setting? It is, yeah. I, I need to be able to see where people are and to believe it. And um, and this isn't a 100% an accurate depiction of any particular place. It is the Northern Beaches, but it's not any particular Northern Beach. It's it's a bit of an amalgam of places. You interviewed Meg Mason and me at a writers' festival recently, and Meg said something really interesting about place that I've been thinking about. And you asked her why she set her book in London and in England while she lives here. And I think she did used to live in London. Yeah. And so that's familiar to her. But she talked about how it just felt too embarrassing to try and write about where she lives now, that it just it felt cringeworthy to be writing about place in Sydney. And I I was really taken aback by that because I can I feel it's cringeworthy to write about where I live, but I don't necessarily feel brave enough to write about anywhere I don't live, <laughs> which maybe I will get to at some point. Um, so, yes, I just felt like I had to write about somewhere in Sydney. And I tried to make myself believe that it's fine to do that and interesting to do that even though you know I've lived where I live my whole life and I don't find it particularly thrilling but then I think about all the books I love that are set in places all over the world where the writers live and know and how those places become really vivid and exciting and real to me when I read those books Um, you know I think about Barbara Trafford's books set in Oxford and you know and all sorts of places and and then I think, no, no, you've just got to be, you've got to be honest about what you know and what you can write about. And so I've written about areas that I know reasonably well. And, you know, I know the smells of them and I know what it sounds like there in the summer. And and I did have to go and do, you know, little drives around and figure it out and, and try and imagine it. I drew a lot of maps. I have floor plans of the house. I have maps of the suburb that I've driven, uh, that I've drawn, even though it's a fake suburb. And so I really wanted it to be real and and I wanted to build the house and I had to know how that was shaped in my head. So I did, I spent a lot of time on domain. That's my, um, my, excuse, my excuse for spending a lot of time looking at houses online. Well, <laughs> um, I live on the Northern Beaches and I was there. When Molly goes to a park by herself I could picture that to me that was Mona Vale like she was at that playground at Mona Vale Beach that I could see it as clear as day that probably wasn't where you put it but it was to me very northern beaches yeah well I think I don't want to break it to you like this but they're all quite similar (laughs) they are all very similar Jess that was actually based that was based actually on the Newport playground uh, at Newport Beach so yes Interchangeable. interchangeable. I don't know where I am on the beach. <laughs> and I wanted the house to be it's like something that every character in that book knew, like the backs of their hands, and they do. You know, yeah. they they all grew up. The children, Annie's children grew up going there for every single holiday where they were dumped with her parents so she and Brian and Paul could make music and hang out. And so I wanted the garden to be really familiar to them all. And, and then I wanted Ray's house to be familiar but less known so none of them have ever been inside Ray's house until Naomi goes in to visit and none of them really know his garden and and the the way it differs from their own garden it was funny after my dad read this he said to me do you only know 
the plants that we had in our garden growing up. Are they the only plants you know? Yes. And I said, yes, they are. They are the only plants I know and can name. And they're all in the garden of this house. And that sense of almost indignation that Molly feels when she thinks Annie might be selling her grandparents' mm. house. I mean, I felt like that when my grandparents did sell their house. It's like, how can you possibly even think yeah. of selling the family yeah. home? Like, I know you own it and it's yours to do with as you wish, but don't you realise that all our childhood, You're selling my best memories. childhood memories yeah, are yeah. in this? Yeah. I, I still have a recurring dream about my childhood home which my parents sold when I was 16 and in the dream my brother buys it and I'm so angry how very dare he how can he get it outrageous going on there obviously Jess did writing this has been absolutely lovely teach you anything new about writing craft or process uh it taught me pretty much everything about everything that I now know (laughs) about writing craft and process because it was so different from anything I've written before um it was a huge learning curve for me. It, it taught me not to create such giant casts of characters, um, which is a rule that I have immediately broken with the book I'm working on now, just as many characters in it, um, which I, I do enjoy now. Like I found them hard to wrangle in this book, but really satisfying, um, even, even when I realised in one scene that someone had vanished midway through the scene absolutely vanished never not not to appear again in that scene never to be accounted for even though everybody else was still at the table one character was gone and that was picked up by my editor and i (laughs) i reinstated that person and then made them leave the room they they were there one minute and then the next second they were gone and needed to be gone but had never left so yeah it just this book it taught me to be a bit braver i think with what i wrote and to, to challenge myself. This was a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. And what lessons are you taking into your next novel in particular? I think I think the thing that has taught me is that I didn't think I could write a book and then I wrote one book and then I was fairly oh. convinced I couldn't write a second book and then I did. And so I'm taking with me the fact that maybe I'm not always right when I think I can't do something and I'm holding on to that. <laughs> I'm sure the next book's going to be wonderful. I remember you said in the past that an editor at HarperCollins said to you when you were thinking about writing your first novel that there are only five plots, pick one. Yeah. What plot did you choose? I, in the end, I didn't do that. I, that was just a way of, I think she was lying. I think it was a trick. I think it was just trying to make me think that it's not as big a deal as you think to think up a story. You just have to have yeah. some people who have to have some problems who have to come through them in some way. That's really all it is. That's all, all stories are. And, yeah. and try and make it funny, Jess. Yeah, make it funny. <laughs> no pressure. I do have a last question. How does Home Is Where Your Heart Is go, Jess? I don't know. I don't have a tune. <laughs> I don't have a tune for it. We I want, need a tune. We need someone to come up with a tune for it. I would love that. I've tried to put it to a few ABBA tunes, but so far, yeah, this is just structurally different. Yeah. I think we need to get Benny and Bjorn onto it. I think we do. Look, there's a, an audio book in production at the moment. I'm just really hoping that my reader sings those parts, <laughs> but I'll know. Something rousing, something poppy, something ABBA. That's, it's got to be something know. that would get you into Eurovision. Have you seen the Eurovision movie with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams? Oh, no, I haven't. It's on my list. 
it's it, I think it would sound like one of their songs. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll get Benny and Bjorn onto yeah. it and then see if the girls are free to record it. They could do it in their um, 3D holograms, which is how they're touring now. Yeah, which is interesting. I don't Still understand don't, it. I don't understand <laughs> it either. We love you. We don't care what you look like. Yeah. But I'm up for the music. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the music, listeners, did you know that Jessica has created a Spotify playlist for this novel? And you can find it on Spotify if you just search up. This has been absolutely lovely. And it's wonderful. It's all the songs that I listened to while I was writing it. Yeah. It's terrific. I sometimes put it on in the car and it makes me feel very happy. Well, I can't listen to it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to do a playlist for the new book. Oh, there Jess. is one. There is one. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully we'll get to listen to that as well when the I next book so. comes out. Hey, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been, it's been an absolute absolutely pleasure. lovely. Absolutely lovely. <laughs> but in a good way, yeah. not in a this has been absolutely lovely way which listeners if you don't know what that means once you read the book you will it's a bit of a thanks for coming it's a thanks for coming but you you are all free to go now jess you are free to go now thank you michelle take care that was great how good was that the gorgeous jessica detman you can find more about jess at her website jessicadetman.com including her blog life with gusto which i warn you now is a rabbit hole you could spend many pleasant hours in and of course you should definitely follow her on instagram this has been absolutely lovely and jess's first book how to be second best are both available wherever you buy your books and there's a link on the website writersbookclubpodcast.com where you'll also find the show notes for today's episode a big shout out to pamela cook Jody Cooler and Cassie Hamer for your questions today. Thank you for sending those in. And I'm going to pop links to your Instagram accounts in the show notes today. Those three women are all accomplished writers and I highly recommend you go follow them on Instagram. Right, what's in store for November? I'm very excited to tell you I've lined up a chat with none other than Mr. Marcus Zusak. Now, of course, you all know and love his incredible international bestseller, The Book Thief, but I'm interested in talking to Marcus about his writing life and process across all six of his books, with a special focus on the books that came both before and after The Book Thief. Those novels are The Messenger and Bridge of Clay. Now, I've heard Marcus speak about writing a few times, and I love the way he explains his craft and really breaks it down with meaningful examples from his own writing so I guess you could say he's perfect for this podcast because that's exactly what we're all about. I'm giving away a copy of Bridge of Clay so head over to Writers Book Club Instagram and Facebook accounts to enter that. Entries will close on November the 7th. I'm so thrilled to be talking to Marcus and I really can't wait to get all of your questions. Thank you all so much for joining me this month. If you'd like to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts I'd be delighted and so grateful particularly this month as it'll help take my mind off the ridiculous number of words I'm supposed to be writing for NaNoWriMo. Are you doing it this year? I'm doing it for the first time since 2009 and I know it's going to be a bit of a shock to the system so um yeah how to turn off that inner editor hey good luck to all of you who are also jumping into NaNo and uh, if you want to connect I'm, I think, Michelle Barraclough, all one word, all lowercase, uh, on the Nano app. So uh, let's, let's connect there. I'm recording today's episode on the beautiful, unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm so privileged to live. 
Have a great month, everyone, and happy writing.